Shit Platypus Says, episode 56. Hello and welcome to a new episode of Shit Platypus Says, commentary on the commentary on the left. This is Pamela Nogales, I'm one of your co-hosts. Today, Andreas Wintersperger and I sat down with Spencer Leonard. Spencer is a founding member of Platypus and has recently published a two-volume selection of Marx and Engels' journalism. The first focuses on the question of Bonapartism, with selections from 1851 to 59, and the second focuses on their writings on imperialism, selections from 1856 to 1862. He speaks to us about the democratic revolution, the question of liberalism, and the self-contradiction of bourgeois society. Spencer takes up the thesis put forth by Domenico Losurdo on the pages of the Platypus Review, link in the episode description, on the question of emancipation and de-emancipation. He challenges this framing and raises the problem of Marxism in the 20th century and its legacy in the 21st. We hope that you enjoy the episode. Links to the books will be included in the episode description, and if you're affiliated with a university, we'd recommend that you'd request an acquisition for your library. Okay, take a listen. We have with us here um, today on the show a very special guest. We have with us Spencer Leonard. And he's here uh, to talk to us about Marx and Engels' journalism. Uh, Spencer Leonard recently published and edited two volumes of journalistic texts by Marx and Engels. These are um, Marx and Engels on Bonapartism, selected uh, journalism from the period of 1851 to 1859, and Marx and Engels on Imperialism, selected journalism from the period of 1856 to uh, 1862. Both of these uh, volumes were published by Lexington Books. Spencer Leonard is also a founding member of and essential contributor to the Platypus Project. He is the head of Platypus Publishing. Spencer, um, thanks a lot for being on the podcast today. Thanks, Andreas. I want to start off the interview by asking what prompted this work of yours? Was there a specific event or tendency in recent history that uh, motivated you to publish and curate uh, Marx and Engels' journalistic works now at this specific time? This project was conceived in the aftermath of Occupy. I can't remember how long ago it was, but it feels like six or seven years ago when I actually drafted the book proposal and sent it to editors, maybe not quite so long ago. At that time, we weren't quite to the moment of the liquidation of the millennial left into capitalist politics, but the party question loomed over the millennial left in the wake of Occupy. There were early tremors that you could see with Syriza, the debate around Syriza and Podemos uh, at that time. It was really a question of you know, Occupy represented a kind of discontent with um, the Democrats and the Labour Party, et cetera, with sort of inherited social democracy and you know 
and, and what passes for that in the United States. And we were developing, I think, a deeper uh, sense of the significance of the Second International and the uh, the kind of the class line in the sense of what historically it meant to organize socialism as a working class politics that was critical and deliberate in its relationship to capitalist politics. And it was around, you know, the, the question of capitalist politics really raised this issue of the history of the category, you know, the, the meaning of the category of Bonapartism, right? One of my favorite phrases from Marx's English language journalism uh, that I've published is this the straightforward statement, imperial socialism, that socialism is implemented as capitalist policy, you know, that the French socialists in particular were attempting uh, to, to, to realize their aspirations through Louis Bonaparte's regime. And of course, this is what capitalist politics does, right? Especially when, when leftists think they're advancing the left, uh, what they're doing is, uh, you know, as it were, providing the content of Bonapartist politics or capitalist politics. So uh, I think that the roots of the, of the project really go back to that and, of course, gain real impetus and the kind of, you know, perhaps I really dug in after 2017 and the liquidation of the American left, as I had known it my entire life, into the Democratic Party, the kind of cashing out of the millennial left, of the left that had emerged in the anti-war movement was simply and straightforwardly to be the reconstitution of the Democratic Party. Mm -hmm. So I wanted to ask a bit of um, a more historical question about your characterization of Marx and Engels' politics. In your introduction to Marx and Engels' and Bonapartism volume, you trace Marx and Engels' political transformation in and through the 1848 revolutions. You characterize this change as leaving behind their quote-unquote neo-Jacobin politics, bound up in the legacy of Babouf and the Constitution of 1793, to what you describe as a working-class politics. This, quote, class independence was necessary to adequately prosecute the democratic revolution alongside other social classes to work to achieve the dictatorship of the proletariat, the political rule of the working class and of those whom they led, a revolutionary political transition necessary to overcome and realize the potential of proletarianized, which is to say, self-contradictory society, end quote. So could you say more about the discontinuities and continuities in this political evolution of Marx and Engels from this neo-Jacobin period to working class politics? What was left behind? What remained? If we think about Marx and Engels in, you know, before 1848, first of all, you know, for those who listen to this podcast, there's just a widespread mischaracterization of of their early development as essentially philosophical that misses 
both the fact that they are engaged with socialism and political thinkers from the beginning, but it, it also really mischaracterizes what philosophy was. What young Hegelianism was dealing with was the question of socialism. You know, young Hegelianism wasn't just, you know, some attempt to to sort of advance the the thought of Hegel you know, despite the anxiety of influence or his towering stature or something. There were new circumstances that were registered even in backward Germany in the form of young Hegelian engagements with socialism. So Marx and Engels are coming out of an engagement with socialism, uh, you know, really as a constitutive element of their development, uh, you could say from 1839 onward, right? So like 19, 20 years old, they're hearing about the Chartist uprising in Wales. They're hearing about the Blancist uprising in Paris that the Communist League took part in, right? Uh, amongst the, the German workers in Paris. There's a neo-Jacobinism at the core of that that you can see in, um, for instance, Marx's notes on Buonarroti, right? the, the kind of uh, political legatee of, of Gracchus Babuf. Um, also in the so-called physical force chartism, right? which is really the, the, the beating heart of neo-Jacobinism. In the, in the 1840s, uh, figures like Brontë O'Brien, and in fact, you know, I, I think Marx is introduced to the Chartists first, at, and speaks uh, to Eng the English left first on the occasion of the anniversary of the adoption of the Jacobin Constitution. Right. So there is like a, a very self-conscious neo-Jacobinism uh, in, in in Britain. It sort of gets to the, you know, the statement that Marx makes to the letter to Wedemeyer in 1852. Joseph Wedemeyer, of course, is his close comrade uh, in the Communist League and one of, one of the few members of the Communist League that could really be viewed as a kind of uh, intellectual extension of Marx and Engels, uh, like Wilhelm Wolff would have been, like, of course, Marx's wife was. These were people who were very much in the inner circle of of the gestation of Marx and Engels' thought and, and of the experience of 1848. And so when Marx writes to Wedemeyer in 1852 and he says, hey, you know, I didn't develop the concept of the class struggle. French liberal historians did that, right? My only contribution is the recognition of the necessity of the dictatorship of the proletariat. He's educating Wedemeyer because they weren't entirely clear about that, right? To a degree, they you know what they knew was that the French Revolution wasn't over, and that the uh, the revolution of 1830 in France was like aborted. Uh, it was like stillborn that it was that they sort of hushed it up or, or, or clamped down on the, on the revolutionary discontent at the time and kind of cobbled together uh, the Orleanist monarchy and somehow had, had, had kept it within bounds and that it was going, that it was returning 
in the 1840s, right? They, they of course, experienced their entire youth uh, as a period of revolutionary fomentation. And so they're going into it as the idea that they're sort of the, they're going to be the working class left of the democratic revolution, mm-hmm. right? In the way that they thought the Jacobins represented a kind of culmination of a process that began in 1789 that reached into deeper and deeper layers of especially Parisian society, driving forward you know, a kind of dynamic of radicalization, you know, from the tennis court oath to the reign of the Committee of Public Safety under the Jacobins, right? And so they, in general, they thought, you know, that the working class was going to push this new democratic revolution, that that didn't require a kind of separate organization for party form. In fact, you know, there's kind of deep historical debate about uh, amongst Marxists as to whether or not the Communist League was dissolved at the outbreak of the revolution in favor of the newspaper, which was really the only kind of organized expression of, of Marx and Engels' politics in 1848, was the Neue Rheinische Zeitung. And so the period from 1850 to 1852, from the end of the revolution and, and Marx and Engels entering into exile and the address to the Communist League in 1850 to the drafting of the 18th Brumaire, which has this sort of coda or kind of preface as far as our reading experience is concerned, which is the, the letter to Wedemeyer, which was basically the cover letter to the 18th Brumaire, because Wedemeyer was Marx's publisher for that. It was published in New York City where Wedemeyer was at the time. These represent Marx and Engels learning the lessons of 1848, right? That the recurrence of the bourgeois revolution in the context of capital might be a repetition and regression at the same time. That is, Marx puts it in the beginning of the opening paragraphs of the 18th Brumaire, no new ground would be conquered. And that's that's like geographically true, right? Like the bourgeois revolution literally does not expand to Germany, right? And so, you know, what looked like a process, it's, it's, I think it's almost hard for people to imagine because we so take it for granted. Earlier imagination was simply that, and in some ways this had been the experience of the French Revolution, even despite and through the experience of Napoleon, that the bourgeois revolution would literally expand and deepen, mm-hmm. right? And it would deepen to address the needs of the, as it were, innermost core of the third estate, the working class. It would address working concerns and the working people would become more and more politically central to it. And the dynamic would be to address more and more thoroughly the needs of labor, right? Which a process that had just begun with, for instance, the San Culot support for the Jacobin faction, 1792-94 to its collapse. And the expectation is that what's begun in the Atlantic 
revolutions in Holland and in England and in America and in France is simply the inheritance of the whole world and it will spread to the whole world. And the experience is quite different, right? The, the way that it gets formulated, right, is that the bourgeoisie proves inadequate to the task of revolution. They, they prove to be beholden to, you know, the aristocracy. Um, you know, we don't have the, we don't have the bourgeoisie that we had before, you know, sort of any Marxist can like recite those points, especially on the basis of like the writings on Germany. Uh, yeah, but really what's signi- what's being signified there is the crisis of the entire modern revolution and its self-consciousness expressed through the Enlightenment or, you know, we're saddled with this word liberalism, but it really wasn't an ism. The inheritance of the 18th century somehow proves inadequate to this task. The process of Marx and Engels becoming clear that they were faced with new circumstances, that they were tasked with being, as uh, Louis Menon says uh, in his preface to Edmund Wilson's To the Finland Station, philosophes of a second enlightenment. Like, what is the task of our time? And why isn't it that we can just continue the enlightenment and we can just continue the bourgeois revolution and we can just push that project forward? But rather that they are the self-consciousness of the age of proletarian socialism, right? That process, I would say, reaches a crucial culmination in the experience of 1848, which is uh, the defining experience for Marx and Engels. It's not the only way that their thought develops over time, right? But the fundamental experience that they are, as it were, the self-consciousness of uh, is is that. Uh, and so we see someone like Lenin in State and Revolution, like tracing this, right, from the manifesto through 1848 to the recognition of the necessity of the dictatorship of the proletariat as the lesson of 1848 and then as it were elaborated through the experience and kind of confirmed in the experience of the coda to the revolution of 1848 namely the paris commune where the left itself in historical experience learns the lesson of the necessity of the dictatorship of the proletariat Right. That kind of vision that orthodoxy recognized, that lesson of Marxism, what orthodoxy took from Marxism, uh, is, you know, what I'm following interpretively, right? That um, for them, as for me, in my, you know, to the extent that I, I, I mean, I'm not, in some sense, I'm disavowing an independent judgment. Uh, and saying, you know, that the terms are set by the past. But I want to elaborate what that meant, right? What did Orthodox Marxism understand by the experience of Marx and Engels? They understood them as the self-reflection upon the real historical experience of their time. And then, of course, the question is posed to us, to what extent are we still living in the age of, of proletarian socialism? Uh, you know, to what extent are we still living in the age of, uh, you know, 
or you know, to what extent are Marx and Engels still, as it were, our context? Maybe to build on some of these issues of discontinuity and continuity and how we understand it, um, I'm going to ask you a question that uh, reaches into the archives of the Platypus Review. We will link the interview with Domenico Lasurdo in the episode description. So the democratic revolution reached its height in the American and French revolutions. But the task of the democratic revolution became self-contradictory under the conditions of a capitalist society when, this is as you wrote, blank, he argued, democracy became illiberal. So here you seem to depart from the formulation by left historians like Domenico Losurdo, who argued that the freedom gained in 1776 and 1789 was hardly quote-unquote universal, which meant that it was not emancipatory, at least not in the radical sense. Lacerdo quibbled with Marx in the interview in the PR. He wrote um, that Marx spoke of the bourgeois revolutions as providing political emancipation, noting that perhaps Marx didn't see the aspect of quote-unquote de-emancipation. But you argue instead that Marx and Engels did not reject the earlier democratic revolution or its gains, but rather, and this is your formulation, that society it created was transformed by its very realization as its freedom grew self-contradictory, end quote. So could you elaborate on the issue of self-contradiction of society and how it differs from Lesurdo's emancipation, de-emancipation, argument. You know, when we think about something like liberal democracy, in the era up to the French Revolution, there is a relationship between like democratizing and liberalizing. But the revolutionary project is liberal. And democracy is, as it were, a means to that. Uh, so, for instance, in the American Revolution or the crisis of the American Revolution, which is really a, a British revolutionary crisis, uh, there's no doubt that questions of the inadequacy of the representation of society in, for instance, Parliament is at stake in that crisis. So there were demands for universal suffrage made in Britain in 1775-76. And obviously, uh, the American Revolution is not just about the representation of the colonial legislatures, but also, as it were, the nature and adequacy of the representation of society in representative bodies per se. And this, of course, took on heightened salience in uh, the French Revolution, where the suffrage is, of course, expanded in concert with the deepening of the revolution. But nevertheless, the aspiration is the self-emancipation of society, uh, the freeing of, in, in the, the, as it were, facilitation or giving scope to a social freedom that, of course, is 
rooted in the fact that this form of society is expressed through individuals engaged in labor, but also is a freedom that exists at the level of society as a whole's capacity to transform itself in history, right? That it's the self-emancipation of society is really about giving free play to society's capacity for self-legislation and self-transformation. And that's not really grasped by a category like democracy, right? Um, that's rather about liberalism. Now, someone like Domenico Lasordo is obviously hostile to liberalism fundamentally thinks that it's, you know, and this is a crude uh, Stalinist inheritance, right, that just views the bourgeois revolution as the revolution undertaken by or on behalf of the bourgeoisie. Mm -hmm. Really, the bourgeoisie as such, you know, well-propertied merchants or owners of of firms of, of you know captains of industry in that sense were never particularly interested in revolution just in the way that you know all property owners tend to be conservative uh, in the face of, of radical social change um there's there's no real sense in which uh, the bourgeoisie ever uh you know drove forward any of what we call the bourgeois revolutions and that even goes for, uh, you know, the English Revolution in the 17th century, which is obviously, you know, there were even, of course, the revolutionary aristocrats and, and the like, well represented amongst the, the sort of proto-Whigs there, uh, you know, as was the case down to the French Revolution. But are they revolutionary as aristocrats? No, they're gripped by the fervor of the revolution. You know, as in the great moment in the French Revolution where the aristocracy deliberately disavows its privileges. So what do we mean by bourgeois revolution? We're referring to this liberal content, uh, right, to this new form of sociality, uh, to the self-emancipation of society, as I was saying, uh, that a form of social relations is already emergent and here there's a strong contrast with socialism socialism is not developing in the womb of capitalism at, at best the capacity for socialist revolution might develop within the womb of capitalism but with the bourgeois revolution bourgeois society is emerging in feudalism Right, and increasingly coming up against the inadequacy of the law, the inadequacy of the ruling class to this new form of sociality, such that it generates the history of bourgeois revolutions, which is really about the adequation of the state uh, to society, or which is another way of putting it is the subordination of the state to the needs of society. Right, something that would be you know clearly expressed by something like parliamentary supremacy in britain right uh the subordination of the crown to the to the representatives of, of society and parliament assembled so lasordo you know thinks that this is all just a project of 
of creating a new ruling class. Right. It's just the trading in of, of one exploitation for another. Yeah, we might simply say there really never was exploitation before bourgeois society. Are the peasants exploited by the feudal lords? You know, it's it's almost like asking, you know, is an antelope exploited by a cheetah? Yeah, it's the order of things. It's the order of things. Whereas the bourgeois revolution is is giving rise to the very concept of society itself, right? As as an object of reflection, as as it were, an object not only in but for itself. Um, so. You know, I, I tend to, you know, you, you hear this all the time, right? Like the bourgeois revolution was, you know, it, it was an aspiration to the emancipation of labor, but it was betrayed by the, by the bourgeoisie. It expressed universal values, but those universal values proved to be partial, right? They, they were a mask for the bourgeoisie. This is not how Marxism has ever understood this, ever. What Marx and Marxism, you know, dialectical Marxism, which is to say Marxism, what they understand is that a the that the self legislation, the self, the the free development of society and history, a society that in that sense is dialectical, right? That is unfolding in history that is giving rise to new forms and then transforming overcoming and realizing still new newer forms in history that that dialectic of freedom is what's contradictory that capitalism emerges with the self-realization of bourgeois society that it's precisely when, and to, you know, to put it in, in straightforward terms that might be familiar to people who've read a bit of Marx uh, or read Capital, as the freedom expressed by the commodity form of labor, as the freedom of wage labor is generalized to the whole of society, women and children becoming wage laborers. And how are they doing that? By demanding industrial revolution, right? The Marxist understanding of the industrial revolution is not that it's like James Watt and, you know, some inventors inventing things and applying science to production, right? The Marxist understanding is that the industrial revolution is demanded by the emerging working class, right? More and more, you know, women want to be freed from patriarchy. They want to be freed from the rule of their fathers, husbands, and brothers. Children want to be freed from the rule of the family, from the rule of their fathers, right? Just as all people want to be freed from unfree labor, from being peasants and slaves, right? All of this entire revolution is driven forward by the wage labor revolution. And in order to meet it, guild craft has to be shattered. The mystery of guild production has to be shattered. The apprenticeship system has to be shattered. Work needs to be made available to labor, which is to say unskilled humanity, labor power, 
the raw ability to work. And that's what industrial labor is. It's, as it were, McJob. And it's precisely at that moment that the freedom of the working class is, is coming into contradiction with itself. Mm-hmm. That the freedom of the commodity form of labor is growing self-contradictory. And it's that condition that Marx calls capital, mm-hmm. right? Which is ultimately a problem of the working class mastering its own freedom. This is an entirely different concept than what than the one that is preoccupied simply with class exploitation as a kind of Lasordo perspective is, right? This perspective would understand class as a kind of epiphenomenal expression of an underlying contradiction. It's both secondary and it's phenomenal. It's phenomenal in the sense that it's the way that we experience the crisis of capitalism. We, or the, the, the unfreedom of capitalism is that we experience it as somebody telling us that we have to be fired so other people can keep their jobs, basically, so that capital can be preserved. For Lasordo, this is just some, you know, it, it becomes inexplicable or it just becomes a question of the need to get rid of the rulers. And so uh, these people have no way of really grasping uh, the fact that capital is itself a problem that transcends class itself. This is really what's at issue in the category like Bonapartism. You know, Bonapartism as the capitalist state will sacrifice the interests of capitalists. Right? It will kill off oligarchs, you know, as Marx says in the 18th Brumaire, bourgeois fanatics of order can be shot down on their balconies by the drunken soldiery of Bonaparte, right? Because the issue is the preservation of capitalist society, not the preservation of the interest of private capitalists. Good. You wrote that, quote, Marx and Engels' recognition was that so long as the proletariat could not yet rule, revolution could only reconstitute Bonapartism. Bonapartism would meet the necessity that socialism could not. Insofar as the Bolsheviks were unable to realize the task of socialism, world socialism, does this mean then that the political party for socialism was just a form of Bonapartism? How do we make sense of this impasse in the history of the left that is the impasse of perpetually reconstituting a Bonapartist politics. I think that it's useful to confront the impasse as an impasse. Right? I think that Platypus is dedicated to confronting the impasse as an impasse, which is to say, let's imagine that the Bolsheviks are Marxist. Let's imagine that their politics is an attempt to bring Marxism fully to bear in history. Let's not evade that question. Let's not assume that Lenin is an authoritarian or that it's all a kind of a project of creating state capitalism. Let's take them at their word. 
let's read that word. Let's engage that word. Let's, you know, of course, uh, encourage everyone to interrogate the question of, you know, what kind of, if you will, students of Marx and Engels are the Bolsheviks. But I think that that study will dispel a lot of myths on the left, you know, both respecting the originality and genius of Lenin, you know, the originality, the genius of Lenin in some ways is expressed through his unoriginality or his ability to, to, to see in the present, the relevance of the legacy of the workers movement for socialism in its highest form in in marxism in other words to bring marx Engels to bear on a circumstance like the provisional government in russia in 1917 right to see that as a repetition of 1848 was already beyond everyone's ability but lenin's in some sense as as difficult as that might be for students to understand so I, I simply think, you know, that we should ask ourselves, well, what if Marxism failed? What if, um, you know, the, the Bolsheviks were unable to realize the task of socialism, that it wasn't because they didn't understand Marx or something like that? Maybe they were able to even develop Marx beyond Marx, and yet somehow, you know, Lenin dies, the revolution in Germany fails, some, for some reason, you know, there's a crisis of leadership, the leaders of, you know, in the, in the wake of Lenin and Luxembourg are somehow not of the same quality, well, why was that, why couldn't they learn from experience, why couldn't they go beyond Lenin and Luxembourg, I want to open those questions up, rather than you know, usually what you get is, you know, and I'm sure, Pam, you experience this all the time in like a faculty meeting discussion of Marx. Well, Marx is still relevant, you know, regardless of the 20th century, right? He's still a great critic of capitalism. Mm -hmm. Platform capitalism needs Marx. The only Marx that haunts the present is the Marx of Marxism. Otherwise, Marx is just another thinker of the 19th century, Right. There were a lot of interesting socialists in the 19th century. There were a lot of interesting liberals in the 19th century, right? But why are we engaged with it, right? The question is, you know, is the is world history done with Marxism or is the failure of Marxism a kind of wound on the health of the present? Right? Is it a kind, does it haunt, does the specter of Marxism haunt the present? That's great because it leads us to uh, the next question. And I want to start this question by quoting Stalinism and Bolshevism. That's a text written by Leo Trotsky in uh, 1937. And that's a quote that also appears in one of your introductions to the volumes. And I quote, Does the slogan, back to Marxism, then mean a leap over the periods of the second and third internationals to the first international? But it, so the first international, too, broke down in its time. Thus, in the last analysis, it is a, it is a question of returning to the collected works of Marx and Engels. 
One can accomplish this historic leap without leaving one's study and even without taking off one's slippers. But how are we going to go from our classics, Marx died in 1883, Engels in 1895, to the task of a new epoch? Studying Marx did not, however, prevent the degeneration of the Soviet state and the staging of the Moscow trials. So what is to be done? End of quote. And then uh, you note that, um, and these are again your words, against this background of the multiply uh, compounded defeat of socialism, we cannot proceed as if editing Marx did not place us, whether we will or no, within a history of struggle over orthodoxy, of repeated returns to Marx, threatening always to degenerate into the bibliographical quisquilia they have long since become. End of quote. So my question is, how did you deal with that situation? That is the other irrelevance of Marxism as a political force today. How did you deal with that situation in your editing of, of Marx and Engels' journalistic works? What Trotsky is acknowledging is that Marxism has proceeded in, as Korsh says, you know, Trotsky I doubt that Trotsky read Karl Korsh's Marxism and philosophy. Uh, he may have. He was probably aware of it. Korsh's formulation is that you know Marxism proceeds in a in a curious way through a return to Marx. That somehow it advances in the face of new circumstances by returning to Marx. It's why Marxism feels like religion right that it's like a quoting of scripture right that you're going back you wouldn't do that with anything else right like why would you go back to this like outdated scholarship on capitalism right or you know why would you go back to these people who like aren't aware of the circumstances that we're facing but nevertheless there is marxism there is this phenomenon of the return to marx and the struggle over an orthodoxy the struggle with the question of revisionism, which does pose the issue of being adequate to your own time, right? Re the revisionists are posing the question of, of being adequate to the present tasks that socialism must meet. And Trotsky is invoking that struggle, that, that history of bringing Marx to bear on the crises within Marxism the renewal of the gesture of the Marxist critique of the left, right? Even up to and including the critique of the Marxist left by Marxism somehow effected through a return to Marx. Now, this book is really, you know, even though it's, you know, I acknowledge it by talking about the publication history of these works and the new left, um, I talk about that in the introduction to the second volume and the question of, of how these works were really, uh, to the extent that they were engaged at all in the 20th century, they were basically just published and affirmed by Stalinists as showing that Marx was a good anti-imperialist. You know, up to the point where people read them and they found, well, maybe he's not such a good anti-imperialist because here he's saying the British are like an unconscious tool of history. And, and Edward Said says, oh, yeah, he's an orientalist. And 
you know, maybe he's a dead white male. So we kind of, you know, we're at this point, we're, you know, far down the road, but up to about 1980, that's how these works were received in the 20th century. Uh, and what I'm acknowledging there is that there is a kind of last and interminable return to Marx, which is the new left, which you might say was the opportunity for either you know realizing or in some sense overcoming the moment of and the problem identified with Trotsky coming to terms with the question of Stalinism in that sense, or to the extent that, that Trotsky sort of, especially 1937 Trotsky, you know, stands in for that problem, right, of the 30s, the reckoning with it in the 20th century, to the extent that there was one, was in the decade and the first and second day, you know, the 11th to 30th year after World War II. 1956 to 76 or something like that. And beyond that, there's sort of academic leftism and now just like a, a very sort of impoverished and undercapitalized academic industry that will use a return to Marx or a new Marx as like a marketing gimmick, right? Or like an attempt to get grants in academia, like, hey, look, we've discovered a new Marx. We've discovered a ecological Marx, right? Marx is really a good feminist. Marx is really an ally of BLM. Marx is really, you know, this kind of thing. What I've tried to say in the, in the introductions is sort of neither historicism, right? Neither let's deal with the Marx of the 19th century as if we could strip away the history of Marxism, as if we could evade the question of orthodoxy and its collapse and the collapse of the left. Neither that nor Marx is perennially relevant and somehow just ready to inform our practice today, whatever that even means. So, that's the way I've tried to handle this question, just by you know, really just acknowledging Andreas. Like, hey, look, this whole publication of Marx thing, like, it's got a politics. It, it's not, you know, it's not really legitimate academically. It has to be haunted by this question. And what I've done is kind of fully embraced it, and said, well, what if this is about like the Marxism of orthodoxy, right? Which in the 1850s would mean the Marxism concerned with Bonapartism and, as it were, anticipating the dictatorship of the proletariat or seeing in Bonapartism the kind of antithesis of the dictatorship of the proletariat, right? It's the symptom an index of the necessity of the dictatorship of the proletariat. With the Paris Commune, they'll, you know, especially Engels famously will say, do you want to see an example of the dictatorship of the proletariat? Here it is. All that you get with Marx is kind of in the wake of 1848 is, well, there's a necessity for it, right? But his analysis is about Bonapartism. If you read the 18th Brumaire, it's an analysis of Bonapartism.
right, as meeting a crisis of a revolution that can't otherwise be resolved. It can't even be resolved as a counter-revolution, right? Um, right, which is why Bonapartism isn't exactly counter-revolutionary, right? A counter-revolution would have been a restoration of the monarchy, right? And so, you know, a lot of what I write about or, or, or what I select Marx writing about is about the about the Bonaparte dynasty in the age of capitalism. What does it mean that they're like a dynasty of Europe, right? They're the dynasty that's associated with modern freedom, as they themselves say, right? That they are the dynasty formed by 1789, right? What does it mean that the legacy of revolution is this? But uh, and, and in that sense, all of this, you know, nine or ten volumes of journalism in the collected works that I've gone through and selected from uh, is really a, a vast elaboration of the 18th Brumaire of Louis Bonaparte, right? And I, I'm simply trying to, you know, in a sense, establish, like, Look, this is the preoccupation of Marx. It's not that he wrote about it in 1852, forgot about it, then wrote the Grundrisse, went back to the library and wrote the critique and got engaged again with the categories of capital, right? Uh, and, and then wrote capital. I mean, you, you can read biographies today. In fact, there is one written. I'll make one slight criticism of my colleagues in as much as I would you know, other Marx scholars. There's a fellow named Marcelo Musto who writes a, a biography of Marx called Another Marx, in which he skips the revolution of 1848, saying, I don't want to make the book too long. Um, <laughs> right? And it's like, you know, it, everything other than the writing of capital is a distraction, right, for a lot of these people. Because right, what they want, right, what the, you know, what the German value critics want, right, what they want is an analysis of capitalism rather than the self-consciousness of socialism, right, the self-criticism of socialism. The form that that took in, you know, especially when Marx has no party and has no political outlet is a kind of meditation on the unfolding of Bonapartism across the decade. Uh, and, you know, of course, I conclude with the, with the reckoning with that, uh, that is the U.S. Civil War, which is sort of the end of, of the uh, coup d'etat as a world historic event and an occasion for the formation of the First International. Great. Thank you, Spencer. You're um, welcome. All right. I think that uh, wraps up the interview. Thank you so much, Spencer, for, for being on, talking uh, to us about um, your edited volumes of Marxist and Engels' journalistic work. Thanks, Andreas. Bye, guys. Bye. Bye.
This has been a production of the Platypus Affiliated Society, featuring original tracks by Thomas Delaci. Platypus is an international membership-based organization that hosts reading groups, public fora, research, and journalism focused on problems and tasks inherited from the old, new, and post-political left for the possibilities of emancipatory politics today. Platypus also publishes articles by thinkers and activists on the left in the monthly publication The Platypus Review. To contact, learn more about Platypus, or to access the entire archive of Platypus reviews and panel recordings, please visit us online at platypus1917.org. That's the word platypus, followed by the numerals 1917.org. Bye!